I have Neil Winton here. It's quite a nice spring morning here with the not, a bit of sun and rather a lot of wind, up to 55 miles an hour, we promise. But so I'm better off here indoors rather than outside. As you know, I'm based in England on the south coast near Brighton. I spent 32 years at Reuters, based in London, Brussels, New York, twice. Toronto briefly as a sub-editor, editor-reporter. I had the global science and technology beat in the mid-90s, and later I was European automotive correspondent. Since leaving Reuters, I published a website mainly about the automotive industry. I was Detroit News' European perspective columnist for about eight years. When I first started writing about global warming as science and technology correspondent, all I knew was gleaned mainly from headlines, but I had expectations. After all, even then, the BBC was reporting as fact Global warming was upon us, it was all our fault, and we'd all die soon if we didn't listen to those that knew best and act. Imagine my amazement when I started talking to the world's top climate scientists and found a completely different story. The science wasn't even close to being proven, and I had great difficulty finding anyone to say that the link between excessive human-made carbon dioxide and a changing climate was clear. There were many assumptions of no proof, yet the BBC and the mainstream media constantly reported a proven doom scenario. By complying with Reuters' standards of balance and fairness, I produced many stories, summing up the fact that nobody really knew the answer to these questions. A, did CO2 really impact climate? And if so, how much was down to human influence? I still don't understand why the BBC was and is adamant that science was settled, or why the mainstream media, with some honourable exceptions like the Wall Street Journal, went along with it. I'm sure it was more laziness than any kind of conspiracy, though. Since then, climate science hasn't progressed much, but now the politicians and zealots are relying on computer modelling for the ever more hysterical climate predictions. These models are notorious for predicting unreliable scenarios, not least because they are loaded with assumptions that are often highly speculative and politically motivated. A recent published book here in Britain, called Not Zero by Ross Clark, a British freelance journalist, caught my attention because it posed the question, why does most of the media in general, and Reuters in particular, say more or less the same thing about climate change? He pointed out a website called coveringclimatenow.org, which Reuters had signed up to, and paid tribute to it as an organization dedicated to finding the truth about the science. But covering climate's mission statement advised reporters to be sure and add to any interesting weather story the fact that this was yet another piece of evidence showing how human action was destroying the planet. As a fan of Stephen Coonan's unsettled book, I knew that this was uh, nonsense, to say the least. Covering climate also warned, warned journalists, journalists about the danger of climate change deniers. So to me, clearly, these were zealots who were determined to shut down debate because no one actually is a climate change denier. Everyone knows the climate has been gradually if occasionally erratically warming, for at least 10,000 years. The argument should be about how much of it is of this climate change is down to man. So my ambition in all this is to persuade the media to return to balance in their climate change reporting, and that Reuters will leave the axe grinders at covering climate now and return to its core values. So that's my statement there, Tom. And incidentally, before I, uh, we carry on, maybe I could just point out to you that I, yesterday, I was banned from participating on LinkedIn because the powers that be there said that a message I put out was, was not right. It was misinformation.
the brief message I put out was in response to a, a radical climate change website saying, first of all, that there was no climate emergency and putting a, a link to my book review of the Kooning, my, my Kooning book review, which explained in obviously rather great detail why there was no climate emergency. So I wait. The, the people from LinkedIn are actually looking at my case now and I'm, they, they claim they're contacting me and sort, sort it out. But currently I'm banned for misinformation. Your whole story is fascinating to me because you were on the inside of the beast kind of for quite a while, right? You were a global science and technology correspondent for Reuters, right? And you, right. did you kind of believe in the narrative for, for some decades? And then at some point you started talking to other people and finding out there were two sides or how did that go exactly? Well, yes. I mean, just as a consumer of news, I, I, I'd assume that, that, the, that the BBC and, uh, and the mainstream media had done their, their homework and I had no reason to think that they were trying to pull the wool over our eyes. But one of the first things I did when I got the job was to do, do a, a piece on this very, very important subject. But that's when I discovered, when I actually started to speak to real scientists, that it wasn't quite what it seemed. And it, 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 as a Reuters journalist, you, well, then I'm not quite sure it applies today, but then one had to really be very scrupulous in providing both sides of the story. And when I look back at my stories from the 90s, they're all, he said this and some of the guys said that. It's, it's a, a, whole, a whole collection of, of various opinions. And now that seems to have gone out of the window. Okay, so you were able to report both sides then. Was there a oh, time yeah. when you were still at Reuters when they wouldn't let you do that? Or were you? did you leave Reuters oh. before that happened? Oh, I, 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 left, I left Reuters in the, uh, 2002. And all the time I was working as climate, climate uh, science and te technology, I had absolutely no problem with that from anybody about, and if I was reporting honestly, that was all that mattered. And then over the last 20 years, have you been focusing on writing about cars? Mostly yeah. here. I've been, I have a, 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 a website, wintonsworld.com, and I was doing a lot of freelance work from 2002 on. And I worked for the Detroit News as their European contributor and columnist. And yeah, so I've been keeping track of the industry quite closely ever since I left Reuters. For the last about three or four years, I've, I've really tried, started to hone in on electric cars, obviously, for they were the coming thing. And again, there was quite interesting a mismatch between what they were supposed to do and what they actually would do. And so far, it's not really been a problem for people because uh, electric cars are still very much a minority thing and also very much a thing that not many people can afford. But as soon as we get into the mass market side of electric cars, then people are going to start to see that some of the, uh, in the the brave new world that we promised is not going to be quite how it looks. And you have a range database, right, for electric cars about what you can expect to get for range, g given the, what type of car you have. Yeah, I've <laughs> I've driven about about more than twenty electric cars. The the, the deal is uh, you get a press car for a week, and you're allowed, you know, you, they give it to you, and then they come they, you have a week to drive it around, and then they come and they take it away again. So you you have quite a lot of time to live with the car and, and, and just find out, will they do what it says on the tin? And uh, there were a fair amount of common denominators I discovered that I have my own charging point in my, in my house. So the first thing I do when a car is delivered is, is just plug it in. 
and that gives me my first bit of data. It's incredible. One of the cars, an Audi e-tron, which is very expensive, that's got a very large battery, 95 kilowatt hour battery. So the manufacturers say it has a, a range of 240 miles. But when I plugged it into my house, I averaged 180. So that's a really quite a big failure. And then I've been also trying to test what, what happens when you drive the things in the, in the fast lane on a long distance journey, which obviously people will, apart from the things that they require for their cars. So various other machines I've driven have, if you, for instance, expect 100 miles of rain in this Audi e-tron, for instance, and so your 180 miles that you've got in front of you would only give you 138 miles on a, on a highway. And of course, given the nature of the early days of the charging structure, you would probably not want to be on the road with less than 50 miles remaining available. So that just cuts down the amount of range time to maybe an hour, where you maybe do get 70, 80 miles, and as opposed to what a diesel car will get you like 400 miles in, in one big leap. Now, off the top of your head, how heavy would that battery be? Or don't some of them weigh over a thousand pounds? I don't know. Quite. I know they 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 are seriously heavy. I I, I don't know quite what that would be in, in, in actual numbers, but they're, they're, all these cars are very very heavy. And you did say if you go sixty miles an hour versus seventy, there's a huge difference in range. I spoke to a, an expert a, a couple of weeks ago now, and he's a professor from the Cardiff Business School. Professor Peter Wells, Professor of Business and Sustainability at Cardiff Business School. And he said, quote, range falls off a cliff at high speed. For an electric car, the extra energy required getting from 60 miles an hour to 75 miles an hour is astonishing and virtually doubles energy consumption to move all that air out of the way. It, it, it's the way the, the car slips through the air becomes very, very important. How does that compare, though, for an internal combustion car between 60 and 75? Your mileage doesn't drop off that dramatically, or should it be the same? If you drove the car 55 miles an hour, then all these numbers that are offered probably would be quite accurate. Although you just have for this Audi e-tron I, I, I talked about, it, 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 would give, it would probably give you about 180 miles if you kept it at 55 miles an hour. So that part of it is, 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 is accurate, but as soon as you start yeah, if you're going, say, from you're driving across France to the south of France, you'll be doing 80 miles an hour because that's legal. So probably an indicated 90 would probably still be legal, uh, and your range would just drop away. Whereas in a a big diesel, it would it would take it in its stride. It would be no problem. The air conditioning, the heating, the the media setup, it, it all drains the battery. It's particularly bad, of course, in winter where it can quite severely inhibit the amount of electricity you can put into the thing, maybe up to maybe 40 or 50 percent, it'll, it'll, won't allow you to, to, to fill it up at all. And then did you want to talk at all yet about the use case about how if you do want to just take short trips in town that for you then the e-car might make sense? Yes, well, it, it does strike me that having driven a lot of these cars, that they, they do have, electric cars are very, very good. Locally, they drive very nicely, very quiet, very responsive, and they more or less do what they say on the tent. A town car, a, a local car, which would 
you know, fulfill most of your requirements, you wouldn't want to spend $90,000 on an on Audi e-tron that would only be very effective around town. But the motor manufacturers in Europe, and I think probably in the US too, are busily trying to make electric cars that are as good in every way as an internal combustion engine would be. And that's impossible because the more you try and do that, the bigger the battery becomes, the more CO2 you expand in the, in the manufacturing process, the more rare minerals you require. And of course, the more CO2 you use up, then it's end of life recycling. Uh, and so what, what in Europe they're doing is that they're basically making these very impressive machines that can't do quite as good a job as a internal combustion engine but which costs a lot of money. And this is going to be a, a big problem for the car industry. I, I, there's a, the, I mentioned the, the CEO of Stellantis, Carlos Tavares. He's, he's been very vocal on this point because he can see, because in, in Europe in particular, it's very difficult for them to make small electric cars that make any money. So that's why they're all concentrating on these bigger cars that can make money out of them. But he made the point that if it carries on like this, we're going to have a situation where the average earners can't afford to buy new cars anymore, and they will be forced to either buy secondhand or, I think, maybe take the train and the bus. And it'll, we get a situation where just the rich are driving around in cars and the rest of us are you know, waiting for the bus. That's not going to be very good. People will start to get a little excited about that and might express their dissatisfaction at the ballot box because these are all being pushed along by politicians and their net zero ambitions. How about the issue of the cost of battery replacement? If you did have one of these little cars running around town, how big of a deal would that be to replace a battery every whatever, five years, or I don't know how long it takes before the battery would need replacement? Well, that's, that is a, 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 well, the current cars that are available with the big batteries, they, they apparently cost about half of the whole thing. So the $90,000 Audi would have a battery that costs about $40,000 to replace. And because there's a new technology, nobody quite knows how long these things are going to last. And they, and they also have this problem with that they are quite easily damaged, apparently, because a, a lot of these batteries are stretched all length underneath of the car. If you bang into it in, in, a, in, in a way that probably wouldn't be appear that serious, it can have catastrophic results and you just have to throw the battery out and get a new one. But if you wanted a, one of these smaller cars, which actually don't exist really yet, they do in China. There's a little electric car called the Hongguan Mini, and that sells for $5,000. And I don't think it's up to our safety standards, but it looks like a little car. And it takes like two people and two kids, and it would take you around town with maybe 60 miles an hour max, you could actually keep up with traffic on the country roads, but it would be small, but cheap, and it wouldn't need massive subsidies from the government to persuade people to buy them, buy one. And how about the issue of fires and maybe people can't park their electric vehicle under an apartment because of the danger of starting the place on fire? Yes, that's, that's a, a story I've worked on a few times over the last year or two, and the data seems to suggest that even though there have been some spectacular examples of, of Teslas burning and other electric cars burning. The data so far doesn't suggest that it is any more liable to burst into flames than 
than a, a traditional car. The trouble is when they do get, get on fire, it's very difficult to control. The, the, the blaze is rather different. For instance, I think that fire brigades now have a special, it's like a swimming pool. They put, they, because they can't put the thing out, they have to drive it into a bit of an artificial a swimming pool-like structure, where, and that would keep the thing doused. And of course, you probably read about the, the Volkswagen transportation ship that caught fire in mid-Atlantic. And, yeah. and we still, have no, I've not seen an inquiry yet in, into the details of how that happened. That will no doubt come out in due course. So what are the logistics of that artificial swimming pool type thing? How do they deploy that in the case of a Tesla fire? Well, you'd have to just somehow pick it up and dump it in there, just lower it in. It, it, obviously, it was burning. You wouldn't want to get too close to it. But <laughs> yeah, and that's because the fire, you think that they've gone out, then they start again. It's, it's apparently a very complicated process. But it seems like you'd have to bring this artificial swimming pool to wherever, wherever the fire is and then put the Tesla in it. No, I, I think it would be, the, I think your local fire brigade headquarters would have one of these, perhaps these ways of doing it, yeah. But again, I, I, it, it's such a new problem that they're probably still racking their brains over what to do. One of the things that, uh, as a non-scientist, struck, struck me as very interesting and, uh, and deserving of, of more research was this idea that if you look back in over the last, say, 2,000 years, and um, the temperatures are, are quite reliably demonstrated, like 2,000 years ago in Roman times here in Europe, in, in, in the UK, it was about as warm then globally as it, as it is now, a bit, a bit warmer. And we're told, that, for instance, there was um, red wine manufacturing was taking, taking place here in, in Britain. So it must have been a bit warmer than it is now. Then the next 500 years, temperatures went down, and they spurted again a thousand years later in medieval times. And it was so much warmer, for instance, that the Danish started to colonize Greenland. And then the temperatures dived again over the next thousand years and became very cold and up again to where we are now. What I'm trying to make is all these huge variations in temperature, but human-made CO2 was nowhere to be seen. So if the, temp if the temperature then was spiking and then de declining, Perhaps it wasn't CO2 because it wasn't, but no one was driving around in SUVs in Roman times, I don't think. So that's a, 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 an area that makes me want, wonder if the consensus, so called, about the CO2 and the climate is, makes any sense. The industry has, has obviously decided here in Europe, at least, that even though they didn't probably like all the extra regulations that they were getting, that they've just gone along with it. They've seen that anyone who wants to argue with the, the consensus, with the conventional wisdom, um, is going to suffer. So they just go along with it. And even though I think that, so that there's not, on the surface, there's not been an industrial attempt to stop it. They're just going along with, they're, they're told to do something. They try and negotiate within, uh, around the European Parliament, for instance, and they try and get the thing mitigated. Like the other day, you might have seen the regulations for 2035, where new gasoline and diesel cars will not be allowed to be sold, that they did have a, a little break in that, where they, the Germans refused to sign the thing into law until they allowed this escape clause for e-fuels, so called manufactured e-fuels that 
turn in you know, combustion engines and will allow Ferraris and Aston Martins and Porsches uh, to be sold in small numbers with combustion engines. I do think, I think you're right. A lot of businesses are just going along with it. Some of the other points that I was talking about, yeah, like the 90% canard that we, we, we keep getting, even, even President Obama, I gather, well, I heard him say it. Yes. That as 90%, 97% of scientists agree, you know, shut up. It's, this is it. It's already decided. Please don't say any more about it. Uh, Would you like to talk now at all about covering climate now? I'd love to know a little more detail about who you think is behind that. Oh, right. Funded. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yes, please. Well, uh, it, it, it's it, who's behind it is it's orchestrated on the surface by the Guardian um, and newspapers like that. But it, the, the the financing is 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 disclosed on their website, and it's the Rockefeller Foundation. A lot of the liberal groups that fund stuff are are behind this. I did try and confront Reuters with well, why did they do this because it does seem to go against all their well the, the, their mission statement for instance Reuters you know, will say that they will pursue the truth and, and but this time they signed up to this to this group and if you look at their their core values they advise journalists for instance if they're writing about the weather to please remember to point out in your story that this is another example of the climate warming and destroying the climate. Now, that, of course, as I've read Stephen Coonan's book and seen all the data that he got from, he says he got all his data from the IPCC, uh, which I, I thought that that was pretty stunning factoid. He's saying that it's clear if these reporters did their job and, and Googled a few things, they wouldn't Start saying things like, oh, well, you know, it's, it, it, the weather is clearly worsening because of climate change. And his, the, the data that he use, uses it just knocks the, the, on the head all these ideas that the climate is getting worse because of this. David Attenborough. Yes. Yeah. It, I don't know. He's a, a, like an, an icon here in all kinds of ways for his reporting on the natural world. I don't know if he is famous in the U.S. Uh, I've heard a ton about him just because I'm so interested in this issue. I think he's pretty famous overall over here. Still. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, he came out with a, a really scaremongering video on climate change about a year ago. And it was, what he did was he took every bit of video you ever saw of you know, floods and, and fires and earthquakes and all manner of typhoons and stuff. And he suggested that th this was the reason for, this all because of climate change and the excess of CO2. But let's say anyone who's read Cunin's book, well, no, that, that isn't the case. So it's, it's so easy to stir people's fears by showing a video of a, of a, of a terrible, terrible uh, you know, ramifications of bad weather, et cetera. But it's so easy to make the case. People will start to think that, goodness me, you know, this is what the climate is doing. But there should be, it strikes me, if you're going to have a program like that, there should be someone on it to say, well, hang on, there is another view here. This, this very well-qualified scientist says this isn't the case. So people need to know that there are other views, and all these other views are people with credibility. Yeah, I don't know if you follow that whole embarrassing incident with Attenborough's film showing these walruses falling to their death dramatically because supposedly CO2 forced them to go up high on cliffs. But he forgot to mention that he knew there were polar bears that were chasing the walruses off the edge of the cliffs. 
don't know if you followed that one, but that that was no, terrible, that propag- one. terrible propaganda. Yeah, called out on that one. About two weeks ago, the UN came out with a, a revised plan for what the, the, the world needed to do. They needed to bring forward their net zero plans from 2050 to 2040. And of course, this was reported right across the media, it seems, as a as fact. Well, no, it was necessary because the climate was falling apart. But I did note that just once I saw in, on Sky Australia that Richard Lindzen was the MIT expert. He was on Australian Sky saying simply that there was, there was no problem here, that, that, that the, the climate wasn't out of control. Uh, but why wasn't that on every single report in the mainstream media to, to let people know that it isn't at the foregone conclusion that they all seem to think. But do you think that covering climate now, that they their tentacles reach very far, right? Even down to local stations in Peoria or something, I, I do believe they're trying to get, to get their hands in everywhere and try to get this story sold everywhere at every level? Yes, look at their website. They, they now, they, I know they started off with 350 members. So they now have over 500. And you look at the name check, Reuters is on the very top line, I'm ashamed to admit. Bloomberg is up there high too. That's no surprise given what we know about Michael Bloomberg and his right. uh, his politics. But there's all kinds of very impressive sounding organizations from from radio stations, magazines, wire services, newspapers, TV stations, a whole lot all around the world. It's really like a global thing. Now how about in movies? Do you have any ideas about there's this new Apple TV show, a series called Extrapolations? It's got all sorts of big stars in it. I'm just curious as to who would be funding it. Every bit of it I've watched has just been ridiculous propaganda about carbon dioxide. I wonder where the financing is coming from. That's that's a new one on yeah. me. I have okay. no idea. But say, uh, uh, you're aware of the, the, the these various foundations around the Rockefellers, are you? I'm sure you are. I don't have the list in front of me, but it, it, it's not hidden. It is on their website, so you can find it out. And do you think that there's a big push here from the UN and the WEF to push us towards CBDCs, digital currencies, and they're going to try to limit how much gas we can purchase, things like that. It very much looks like that to me. I've heard the the stories, but okay. I, I've not really written anything about it. Or I, I don't like the idea. For, you know, it, it does obviously mean it's terribly convenient on one level, but it's also it could be very controlling on another. So there is some um, movement here in this country to try and make sure that cash in, in our government. So one, one or two of our government ministers wanting to make sure that even though these things can make life easier for some people, the boon of cash, of course, is that it does keep people honest a bit. And also not everybody can, you know, has a smartphone even now. Old people don't tend to have smartphones. And yeah, yeah. Where do you feel like you have the freedom to express your, what your real thoughts on global warming? Like you said, on LinkedIn, now no, you can't. But like on Daily Skeptic, you were able to write this great article about about the climate change issue. But anywhere else where you feel free to uh, to say what you really think? Well, I, I don't think there's any problem. I, 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 mind you, I hadn't been blocked by LinkedIn a couple of days ago. Uh, but it's difficult to see how, you know, when you see the likes of Greta Thunberg and, and, and the way she had an influence on children, he realized that in schools now, that they're not teaching a balanced version of why the climate might be warming or not. 
So in education, I would guess that it's it's a pretty much a one-sided thing. And you see all these quite young, young people who seem quite desperate sometimes about the long-term prospects of their existence because they, they seem to think that uh, you know, the, the, the climate's going to make it impossible for them to live. I, I do see that the Wall Street Journal gives a lot of airtime to Bjorn Lomberg, and uh, he's on, on LinkedIn every day too. So they, they, they haven't been shutting him down. And he's, but he's not a climate change denier, but he doesn't like a lot of the policies, does he, that the governments are bringing in. And while all the time he's uh, at liberty to give his views, I'm, I'm happy that at least there's a chance of some of these more extreme policies being turned around. So you did say that you've done reviews on your blog of books by Bjorn Lomborg, Mark Morano, and Steve Coonan. Did you yeah. put those reviews just there or did you get them published elsewhere too? Or should we be go going to your blog to see that type of stuff? It's it's just on my on my blog, yeah. And who's hosting your blog? I'm just curious if you're worried about getting censored over there. I did have my major post on Google's blog spot. They just deleted it because they didn't like what it said. No. Oh. A couple months ago, yeah. Oh, no, I, 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 most of the time because I, I've used my website as a kind of my CV. To, to let people know out there who, who want journalists to want to employ journalists for whatever you know stories and stuff, I, I use it to just as an advertising vehicle for my work. And so it's not sponsored by me. In short, I'll definitely put the link in the show notes here. I want people to read your Daily Skeptic piece from February twenty third. Was that your first piece out there on Daily Skeptic? Yeah, yeah, I, I did write it first for my website, but yeah, so I, I, I hope to write for them again if I can. Yeah, they, they seem quite happy with things, so I would, I, I'm sure I could do some work for them. That so, particular article got quite a bit of traction, right? I saw a lot of people talking about it on Twitter and stuff. I was happy to see that people were, were reading that one. Right. Unfortunately, it didn't seem to have any impact on Reuters. Then my main, I thought maybe I could shame them into changing their minds, but the when I, I look back at a story from 2019, when they signed up for this, and the editor was very effusive about how wonderful this organization covering climate was and how they were convinced that they were seekers after truth, and they were happy to join in with it. But it strikes me that when you look at 10 core principles of Reuters reporting, and at least three of them seem to be at variance with what covering climate does, because they refuse to accept that there might be a counter view. One little tidbit you mentioned here was Musk interview at 55 miles an hour. Oh, yes. Yes. About five years ago, six years ago, Musk was at the Geneva car show. And again, I think in 2015, I'm not entirely sure what year it was, but I was determined to get something out of him because it wasn't mentioned in any of his publicity that all the details he, he published for his car's range. So I, I've colored him at a press conference and he, he gave me the, the eyeball treatment and the contempt. <laughs> Look, so I gritted my teeth and carried on. But anyway, I I, I got into to admit that all the figures that they came out with were for an average of fifty five miles an hour, which and I think I don't think people drive quite so fast in America uh, as they do here in Europe. But and I don't think that that is is that still true. I don't know. I don't. I drove across New England about six years ago, and I think anyway they weren't doing eighty miles an hour or ninety miles an hour like they do. Across Europe. Yeah, the speed limit right here in Minnesota is 70 in the open freeway. Oh, really? Well, that's, that's, yeah. that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. But so, but that, that would not do too well 
your electric car would not, would not right. get you very far. Because 55 miles an hour is what all these numbers are based on. So how about this whole issue that I was looking into this carefully maybe 10 plus years ago about Tesla and battery swapping, that they were getting credits based on the idea that you'd be able to drive your Tesla into a bay and some robot would swap a fresh battery with your, with your used battery. You're going you're gonna to be doing that. They got credits for doing that. I haven't heard a word about it in a long time. Have you heard anything about that? Yes, I have actually. Yes, I think that, that he was, there was a company called Better Place, which was an Israeli company, which started off the battery swapping. It was, it was uh, allied with Renault and Nissan, which, which uh, uh, 10 years ago were very much at the forefront of the development of electric cars, but they couldn't make it work. But recently, um, a BYD, I mean, your friend Warren Buffett's company is, isn't it? Still, I think he has a big interest in BYD I, of China. I believe he does. I think you're right. They, well, anyway, they, they've really taken this on board and they, they've got quite a sizable business in China doing it, apparently. And they're now starting to do it in Europe. And they're starting in Norway, because Norway being a, a, a very rich, energy rich country is, is dominated by electric cars. And the Chinese are trying out a lot of their new ideas and cars in Norway. But yes, they're doing battery swapping. I've seen a video of how it works. You know, you drive in and you clank, clank, click, and they take one battery out and put another one in. And off you go. Uh, but the, the, a lot of people thought the economics of that were not, not too good, given that if the battery costs $40,000, it, it, you couldn't really have a stockpile of them. So you would have to yeah. uh, just swap. We, we would need a stockpile. But anyway, they're making it work. And I think uh, if you buy a car that way, you'll rent the battery that you, that you have. And so you'd swap it. You wouldn't own the battery. I think that's probably how it works. But it's, it's definitely an alive project going on here in Europe. And I wrote about it about six months ago for Forbes. Very interesting. Overall, what do you think the car industry is going to look like in 15 years, let's say? What percent of the fleet out there is going to still be old-fashioned internal combustion cars? Hey, hard to predict, I know. Well, it's not that hard if, if the yeah. politicians actually are going to do what, they're, do what they see they're going to do. I wrote, I wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago for Forbes about how what's, what's happening in Europe is that because of, I've said earlier that the manufacturers are making these bigger, more massive, heavier electric cars that are very, very expensive. But they're doing that for one, one reason. is because the way the European Union regulations have been designed makes it possible for them to make profits with these kinds of cars, but very little profit for small ones. And so, but meanwhile, of course, I said earlier, there are small cars in China, the Hongguan Mini and something like that. But in the next five years in Europe, the Europeans will find that their basic industry has been taken over by the Chinese because the Chinese aren't going to bring in their small, cheap $10,000 cars. You said here, I think it's great that rather than politicians mandating the winners, that we should just let the free market decide who's going to be driving these little cars in the cities, et cetera. Well, yes. You know, what happened, it's very sad, really. In the UK, Boris Johnson, when he was in power, one of the things he did was he, he thought it would make him look good if he, if he looked at what Europe was doing. Europe is going to ban internal combustion engines in 2035, but he would do it in 2030. And so that rule still stands. And so our industry here is, is being wound down uh, because uh, Boris Johnson decided he wanted to signal his virtue by being even 
faster than the European Union. And so the, the industry is going to suffer. And it would appear that my story a couple of weeks ago is right, that by the end of by 2030, it would appear that the mass market manufacturers in Europe will be almost wiped out. There's, there'll still be the BMWs and the Mercedes, et cetera, will still be making a lot of money selling big, powerful electric cars. But the Chinese will have taken over the, the lower end of the market, even though they probably don't make much money now selling small cars. They'll certainly be building it up to make, to make cars that do make money at some point. So it looks like the Chinese are going to be dominating the European industry. They've done a lot of work in China developing electric cars, and, and they, of course, haven't. They still allow internal combustion engines as well. And one of the mysteries to me is that, you know, the plug in hybrids, I don't know if you know the difference. The plug in hybrid has a battery of maybe 30 to 60 miles capacity. Yes. And so it's, it's, it allows for both. And so you, if you buy one, you don't get range anxiety. But they are now they're coming into Europe at, at the $20,000 level. And they're they, and they're doing very well. A company called MG, but they 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 bought the rights through the old British name, and MG is being very very successful. But also they've been a aiming cars straight at BMW, Mercedes, Audi, Porsche, which I thought that they'd never do that, but they think they can. So the tariff regime, I think, there's a ten percent tariff on Chinese cars. But it may well be that the European Union will have to revisit that, and because if, if, if even the top end of the market is being attacked by the Chinese, they might want to do something about supporting that. Do you think, though, that the Chinese in any way are pushing green policies or encouraging the West to commit to economic suicide with these green policies? I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I hear people suggesting that. I, I have no idea about that. I do know that there was a a report in, in the UK a couple of years ago that the Green parties here were being financed by Russia because uh, uh, they could see how much fun it would be to cause a bit of trouble. But I don't, I don't know if that was ever... I think the, the Greens were, didn't react too, too well to that suggestion. I don't know if it was ever proven, okay. but it was certainly a rumor. But one of the things that I thought that would boost the small car market was the fact that at the moment, if you if you do a long journey across the UK and across Europe in a regular Audi e-tron, as I was t talking about earlier, it, you it will be a nightmare because you don't quite know whether the charging stations will work. You don't know whether there'll be a, a queue that could last five hours before you can get to it. There's also you if if you want to go and fill up at a electric charging station, you can't do it like in a petrol car. You can't just go in with a credit card. You need a special app to do it. And each time, and these apps, there's about 10, 12, 15 different apps you can have. Each time you use one, you have to put in 20 pounds. Anyway, the thing is that the whole long distance scenario is 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 a nightmare. Also, to, to solve that would cost billions because you need a, you know, a huge array of charging stations to, to, uh, to, to do the work. But if you went for a small car, you wouldn't want to go a long distance. That wouldn't be on your horizon at all. You could charge at home, and you wouldn't need this very expensive charging network. So that's another reason why I think that the if there's going to be any popular success, it has to be the small 
$10,000 small car. Yeah. yeah. I am curious, you've charged a lot of different types of cars at your house, right? Yeah. And is it is it difficult to do that? Do you need any adapters or anything? Currently, the, the plug is the same. I expect some, someday soon they might, they might change all that. But yeah, for the moment, any, any car that comes, just I just plug it in, no problem. One other thing you mentioned here is that a large proportion of German electric cars are powered by coal. It was 20%. <laughs> yeah. Recently. yeah, I love that. I love that, that factoid, yes. But that that was true six months ago, because the Germans still do rely a lot on on, on coal-fired electricity. But since the energy crisis and their problems of getting Russian gas and coal, they've restarted their own coal-fired generation. And so you can say probably that at least a third of all German electric cars are running on coal. <laughs> do you have a sense as to what the overall energy efficiency is to burn the coal at the plant and send it over the wires and eventually move uh, an electric car? How much energy do you I don't do you know lose? that one, I'm yeah. afraid. No, no. We are told that the the technology is very much simpler than the internal combustion engine. So it's much cheaper to assemble the motor. And that, that part of it is, is definitely cheaper. But a, a lot of the people talk about zero emission cars. And of course, none of them are zero emission because the, the, the manufacturing processes I mentioned earlier, the, the mining and the eventual disposal uh, soak up a lot of CO2. And there's a lot of argument about exactly at what point when you own an electric car do you, because it starts off with a huge burden of CO2 already consumed. And there's a big argument about at what point in a, an ice car's life would you still be ahead of the electric car? Some people say it's up to 20,000 miles. Some say it's up to 80,000 miles. So that, that one's up for, for grabs. So the, the idea that these, these are zero emissions anyway is, is false. How about the whole issue that I've read about once or twice about the EVs, cars heavier, so the tires throw out more particles, There's the tires wear out faster, maybe roads wear out faster. Is there any validity to that at all? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I know, I, I, I really regularly talk to a company called um, Emission Something. Forgive me uh, for if he's watching, I can't remember the name. Anyway, he's published a lot of information on that very subject, that the the, the heaviness of the car obviously makes the tires wear out faster, and the, and the tires themselves push out nasty little fragments of stuff that aren't good for people, just like nasty little fragments in you know, diesel. And yeah, so it's, that's a, a, an area that is is under uh, discussion right now. It's just how serious that might be. How about the issue of fuel taxes, the pay for roads, supposedly, on internal combustion cars? How is that going to work if we switch to electric cars? Well, in the UK and, and in most of Europe, the, the amount of tax we pay for a gallon of gasoline is, it, it, it varies because the price has gone up so much now that the, that the, the percentage has changed, but it used to be about 70%. So it's probably still pretty close to that. So I, don't know, I think in America it can be maybe 5%, 10%, if it wouldn't be more than that. But here, 70% of the price is tax. And so obviously, the bigger the market share that the electric cars capture, the less revenue the governments will be getting. And so they will be very, very interested in finding a way to replace that. And there's talk of road pricing, all kinds of schemes that they've got in hand to 
try and replenish the coffers. Have you looked into that much about how physically we could charge all these cars at night? That I guess we would need a lot more electricity generation and it's not going to be solar at night to do that? Well, at the moment, it, it's possible because there's not many electric cars around. You, you get a good rate at night. Right. But I did see something the other day that did point to the fact that I meant to mention earlier that by 2030, the analysts reckon that 60% of European new cars will be pure electric. So that, and now it's about 15%. It's, it's a huge amount of extra generating capacity will be required. And in Britain, the, the, the grid is, is pretty collapsed out anyway. The idea that it could work with all these electric cars and it, it's, it's for the birds. But yes, that is going to be a massive problem. Will there be enough electricity around to actually allow all these cars to work? I think just in the last year already in the U.S., there's been appeals for electric car drivers to not charge their vehicles because the, there's been so much strain on the grid from other stuff, maybe. so. Yes, I did read, but that was in California, wasn't it? Yes, and and I I see that the Biden administration this week has come up with their their plan for 2030 as well. Well, I think that's about 60% electric, if I remember rightly. By 2030, one of my contacts, Strict Automotive Research, reckons that it'll be 60% of of new cars will be electric, and that's not that is pure electric, not plug-in hybrids or hybrids, just pure electric. Norway is massively electric now because they're rich from their fossil fuel mines and etc but they also made it very very difficult for people to buy internal combustion engine cars so they've stopped you couldn't get into a city you know they have special privileges for electric cars or you can drive in this lane and park there for nothing and they made it very very difficult for anyone to operate an internal combustion engine car all right, I hadn't heard that part. I thought oh, yeah. it was just. I know that's happening all across Europe anyway, on a smaller scale. That a lot of big cities in Europe are trying to make people dump their cars and get on their bikes. And that's not terribly popular either. And I was just, I mentioned Carlos Tavares of Salantis talking about how if the rich or the only ones driving around in cars, it's going to have political repercussions. If this does go in the way it looks as it might well go, you've seen. How the Gilets Jaunes rioters in France are busily burning down the town halls and generally going nuts. You can expect to see that kind of activity, I think, if people aren't forced to give up their cars. They're, they're convenient, comfortable, warm cars for uh, public transport. The powers of bees seem to want that. It seems to be that, that, that there's, there's, there is a hidden agenda that people mention here that when I point out that Oh, the electric cars will be too expensive. People won't be able to afford them. That's what they want, because that means that people won't be able to drive. And the, the European politicians seem to be actually trying to force us into that position. Yeah, I've heard people say that there are a certain segment of the elite wants to get rid of private car ownership entirely. And uh, EVs are just a stepping stone. And then once people have them, they'll be pushed out of those into public transport and biking, et cetera. That is the unstated logical outcome of all this of this process, I believe. My motive for doing all this is to try and shame people into returning balance to their reporting and uh, in general, and for Reuters in particular to realize that what they're doing breaks their own code of, of, of doing business, which I think is really rather sad.
Do you think if Reuters is around in 2060, they're still going to be selling the climate crisis hard or is the pendulum going to swing back to where it was in the 90s and they're going to be reporting more on both sides if the if it's even an issue then? I don't know. Media in in the UK now is, 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 is changing slightly where the BBC's monopoly is being broken by more right-wing organizations called like GB News or uh, Talk TV where they really are allowing more conservative voices to, to be to be heard, and people I think are shaking off the 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 BBC monopoly. I don't know if that holds water across Europe. I think well, in, in you have Fox News, of course, in the US doing the same thing. Is Fox now? It's, it's still alone, plowing a lone furrow, isn't it? As far as I know, in the US, yeah, yeah. But like you say, I'm very encouraged by what you just mentioned with GB News and Talk TV. And the rise of even the Daily Skeptic, I'm loving some of the stuff they're putting out. Great stuff. Yeah, I, 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 I really turn to them every day. Uh, Toby Young, who, who runs it, is a, is, a, is a great man, a really admirable guy. And uh, he's got this free speech society, too, these he runs, where people who are shut down and victimized by the conventional wisdom are, have, have a place to at least be heard and maybe have their wrongs put right. Another voice here is Kevin Kilo from the Cowboy State Daily in Wyoming. I hadn't heard of him until recently, but he's putting out enormous amounts of great climate realist information, and it's oh, getting right. some traction on Twitter. I'm, I'm really enjoying seeing stuff like that. That makes me happy. So, Neil Winton, thank you very much for doing this, and I hope to read a lot more of your stuff in the future here. Thank you. Thanks a lot. That was a pleasure.